Hello, I'm Joss Stone. Thanks for joining me for a cup of happy. I spent the last few years singing my songs in every country in the world and been lucky enough to meet incredible people from all walks of life. What really struck me is that no matter where we are, we're all on the same mission. We're all just trying to find our version of happy. So with this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to a whole host of people to dig deeper into the what, why, and how of this emotion we call happiness. I hope that with these conversations, you discover something to help you on your own quest for happiness, possibly change your mind on a few things, and along the way, share a good old laugh with me and my guests. Today's guest is an author, documentary maker, and war photographer who's had a life like no other. Whilst photographing the horrific war in Syria with journalist Marie Colvin, he was bombed by the regime. And sadly, Marie and other members of the team didn't make it. Paul's story has since been made into a movie, A Private War, and the incredible documentary Under the Wire. On the show today, he regales stories of pure positivity and good humour in the face of absolute horror. I think that this episode, through Paul's unique perspective, has the power to help us all live with more gratitude. So here he is, my friend, Paul Conroy. Do you know, I was having um, an argument this morning, not an argument, but um, a discussion about whether people are hardwired half full or half empty, or whether that just happens, you know, when you're growing up. <laughs> when you ground down. Yes. I do think that certain behaviours are encouraged. So if you're a half full person and every time you say something happy and joyful, everyone around you makes fun of you and tells you what a twat you are, you're going to stop doing that. Yeah, conditioned out of you. I think if you do it as a kind of, um, I am this person, it's harder to knock it out of you. But if you're less outgoing person and you try being jolly all the time, then people, then then it's hard to resist when people are like, you yeah, know, you you turn into like a, a little better not say. Um, I'm like that. You know, everyone's moaning on about lockdown, and I'm going. Actually, I I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I don't love all the all the shit that's going on. But the the ability to just stay at home in my own head and do all the stuff that for years I've been thinking. Oh, I'd love a bit of time to do all of this. Yeah, and and therefore it just at no point in the lockdown is it have I gone, oh it's terrible. Of course I'd love to do things like you know, go and see me dad and all of that. Yeah. But you know the the responsible thing is not to do that, and so it's almost like someone's taken a degree of responsibility away for a while, and and you're just left to either make the most of it or right. Well, you have two choices. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I have wholeheartedly embraced the fact it's been shit. My mum died, for God's sake. I know. And and so sad. that aside, but even then, if I let this get to me, yeah. you know, you have to lay the ground to be all right. You know what I mean? It doesn't happen automatically that you're going to be all right with it in your head. Yeah. I mean, you've been able to keep jolly and laugh and make hilarious dark jokes throughout very difficult times not just this but your whole job has been that how did you manage to do that where did you learn that did you learn it from your dad is it because you're a scouser is it because you're in the army think, where did it I come think from part of it is the the scouse thing 
that even when things are really bad, you, you know, all the tragedies that have hit Liverpool, you still saw people at the end of the day kind of stand up, dust themselves off and get on with it. And, you know, there were, the, the humour, humour without doubt, I think, if you speak to anyone in this job that I do as a war correspondent, a photographer, I can't think of any that don't have the same trait and that is the ability to to crack a smile. With me, that came, I think, from, from being a scouser. And, you know, I was in the army where you either had to laugh or, or you went under, you know what I mean? That was also... Yeah. And, you know, that's very much the way it is in, in a war zone. Me and Marie, Marie Colvin, who I'm sure we'll talk more about, yeah. you know, our biggest method of coping when the situations were, you know, truly hellish. You know, I could see when Marie, you know, when we were in bad situations, and Marie would go quiet when she got really nervous. And, and I could see her kind of go into herself a bit. So, you know, I, I would... I would counteract that with a little, you know, say just something often ridiculous or completely out of the blue. And she'd just look at me and burst out laughing. And it was it was that was often enough to break that cycle. The danger in a war zone when the situation's closing in on you is you close in on yourself. And when you do that, you're not looking at the situation around you and you're not aware of your situation. If you're going inwards, you, you lose that sense of space where you are so it's really important and she'd do it to me would you say it's a bit of a survival technique to make molehills out of mountains absolutely you know if you come across a mountain you know you have to turn it into a molehill pretty quickly because it's a fucking mountain <laughs> you have to reduce them to something that's manageable and i and i would find that as the time went on in a war zone you know we were in misrata in libya we went in Theoretically, when the siege was just getting started in Libya, when the, the rebels were getting crushed by Gaddafi and the whole city was surrounded by rocket launchers. And every day, Gaddafi would just spend 12 hours a day firing these rockets into the center of the town where the people were. And we, we smuggled ourselves in, into that, um, for reasons <laughs> best known to, to, to others. <laughs> Who was encouraging this? Were you going in for a newspaper or were you just going in for a laugh? This this was with the <laughs> we were with the Sunday Times and we we'd got into okay. Libya. Um and the kind of the revolution had moved on somewhat from where we, from where we got in. So we, we kind of worked out a way we, we smuggled ourselves onto a boat and got into where the siege was. And in them situations, it's just really tiring anyway, just the daily the daily chore of of going about under under heavy artillery bombardment. God, it must be so stressful. Witnessing what we were witnessing, what the people were going through. And that's okay for a day or two, but when you start doing that for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, a month, two months, you know, you have to find a way. You can't go to bed every night with that, all that horror that you're seeing inside yeah. of you. And so... You know, at the end of the day, even if it was just a little f flipping one-liner, just yeah. to break the mood, you know, that was often enough to recharge your batteries. So when you get up the next day, and you know you're going to see more of the same, but you have to you have to disperse it out of your system, and that's. And Marie was very good at that. She she was she had this kind of kind of New York 
whiskey and cigar kind of Hardcore, approach to yeah. life. And and you know, with me, you know, it was a, it was a good little duo. You know, that don't know what the Libyans thought of us. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, oh, god, oh my god it's them too <laughs> but that was it you know and, and i think that's what makes a good partnership you know in them circumstances it reminds me of a little story you told me a while back i was chatting to do you know professor nutt the guy that stood up against our government and oh, he yeah, did yeah. this study on drugs and and he'd said something along the lines of horse riding is more dangerous That's than it, ecstasy. Yeah. And they were like, oh, okay, you're fired. Goodbye. But actually it was true. And um, now he's studying um, microdosing and like psilocybin and stuff. I remember you told me, and I don't remember what country it was or what war it was, but um, I believe that you tried a bit of microdosing, <laughs> didn't you? And that, was like, <laughs> that, that was good old fashioned weed it was we were in uh, to keep your spirits up well we were in misrata <laughs> it was and it was about midnight and mm. i was with these rebels and marie had actually gone to stay in a smuggler's house reader's house so she was monitoring the radio traffic in one house and i was in this other house down by the hospital with a bunch of rebels and they one night they start skinning up and you know it was about midnight we'd all done our day's stuff and they're going, Paul, do you want to talk? And I was like, yeah. And I'm going, it'll be like really shitty, you know, desert weed. Bushweed. Bushweed, just a bit low scream. But I'll show community spirit and join in. So, yeah. so we're laying there. And like, after, after a spliff, like, I'm like, Frick, that was quite strong for bushweed. And I was like, oh, I get so paranoid in a war zone smoking weed. How did you manage? Well, it was really because, well, the, <laughs> The main thing I thought was like, Marie's safely at the other side of town for the night. We're not going to be doing anything. So that's right. all right. So I'm laying there really stoned. And the next minute, there's this like almighty banging on the door. And there's Marie in a flak jacket, helmet, oh going, my. Paul, there's an attack. The tanks are coming through. Get your stuff. And I'm like, Bad what? <laughs> Grab me cameras and trying to put a flak oh, jacket no. on going, oh, no, I'm really, really stoned. I don't want to be this. <laughs> so we went out to this front and there was this a tank had come through and it was just sat there just blowing shit up around us. And there's me trying to look at me cameras. Like it, it must have looked like I'd never used a camera before in my life. Oh, I was no. kind of like trying to photograph <laughs> flashes at night. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I remember at some point jumping into a trench and Marie's going, are you all right? You're not your normal self tonight. And I go, no, 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 I'm absolutely fine, you know. <laughs> She's like, why are you talking like that? Oh, no. <laughs> why have you turned into an English lord? <laughs> oh, no, that's awful. It was awful. And then so it I didn't thought, work for you then? No, I thought of all of them films in Vietnam where they drop loads of acid and go fight, and it was like, I was really bad on a couple of spliffs. I wouldn't I wouldn't have coped on no. any any dosing. Anyway, no, I never tried that again. That was, that was such a no, bad idea. No, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Good God, man. What I are got, you on? I got back and it all going, let's have a look at your photos. I was going, no, 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 no. <laughs> Just like loads of loads of black shots with little flashes in the top right hand corner, just absolutely hopeless. And she's looking to you for instruction, like, oh, yeah, can we get yeah. in here. <laughs> she must. The clue was when I got my English Lord voice on. It was like, yeah, okay, he's stoned. <laughs> <laughs> Leave him behind. You can sit oh, this one out, Paul. 
So, I mean, I was talking to uh, Sangar, the chap that took us in, um, into Syria. Oh, yeah. And what he was saying man. similar things. And the way that you guys are, I mean, you're hilarious, basically a very hilarious group of people. I have found the most fun people in the dodgiest areas. But obviously my trips, <laughs> my trips have been short and sweet. Very sweet is the point, right? So I'm going to these places. It's gig day. It's gig day every day. So yeah. I'm going like, okay, here we are in Syria. I'm going to sing a little song. So of course I'm going to meet people that are smiling and dancing because there's music and there's happiness every single time. But if you, you spend longer there, you would think that, you know, it could get depressing. But the way that you talk and the way that Sangar talks and John, the other guy, it's always very funny and you strike me as very happy people. And then when you meet the people that live there, they're also striking me as very loving and warm and welcoming. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think you get that in many places that aren't, ugh, I don't I know. Think what you see when you go into them places, I mean, and you've seen it to a part, you know, in, when we were in Syria, it wasn't all sweetness and light, you know, that at any point that could have all gone wrong and yes. other countries. It was quite heightened, wasn't it? It was a yeah. little bit stressful, but even that lady from YPJ cracked a smile in the end. Yeah, well, they do. And that, the thing you've got, where you've got to look at it is like these places, once you start stripping away yeah. all of the, the, you know, we all have, a standard of lifestyle that we're used to and and what i've found my experience is that when you start stripping away all of the niceties all of the stuff that makes life comfortable and then you start putting a community under pressure as the luxuries and the the, the stuff that isn't necessarily stripped away then people start relying on each other and yeah. the very first time I noticed this was in Kosovo in 1999 I think it was and that was the first time I'd ever I'd ever gone to a war zone and and I was at the border talking to refugees when they were coming out and what I noticed was that when they saw us, you know, initially I, I felt I felt really intrusive when I was stood there with the camera and I was asking yeah. them questions about what had happened. Yeah, I can imagine. But what, what I found was that they were all going through this stuff together. You know, it was happening to everyone. They'd lost a son, they'd lost an uncle, they'd lost a child. Mm. And and so amongst themselves, they, they couldn't sit there and, and be. They couldn't afford the luxury of being broken by it they right. had to band together for each other and when they came across us and we were saying what happened that's when they could unload and tell their story that's when you saw the truth they knew that it hadn't happened to you so it wasn't a burden there was a vain hope exactly they weren't burdening the neighbor who'd had the same thing and yeah, that's yeah. quite a big responsibility when someone actually opens up to you like that you know yeah. the, the onus is on you is not just to be there and listen and go oh, the house sad is to actually try and do the best you can with that Mm. So when you go into these societies and there's a war happening around them and they're being shelled and they're being targeted, it's quite amazing that they're not just sitting there crying because that's kind of what you'd expect. That's but the, totally the fact of the matter expect. is they, they, they know they have each other and that life must go on. And if you have that situation where you see a parent has a sick child who's dying of cancer and you try and imagine Oh, how God. that parent is coping because we all imagine you know i imagine it now i'll just fall apart yeah oh, and, God, but that no. inside that person's head they're coping and they're dealing and, and people look at them and go how are they dealing with it i do it 
And I think that about war zones until I walk into them. And then you see that people have no choice but to, you know, that humour will shine. I remember being in Homs when we'd got into Homs in Syria. By far the most devastating, catastrophic things I've ever witnessed. That just the 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 absolute we were watching civilians being slaughtered you know assad yeah. was raining death down on them and we were there trying to get the story out you know we were trying to help stop it but on that layer it was hell but on the next level down at night we'd sit down with these guys and we would be pissing ourselves laughing with you because their humor in this situation and you would sit there and think how is anybody laughing in this yeah, situation? Right. But you know they have to go on. It's it's not it's not a conscious choice. It's like that person dealing with a, a sick kid. You know they find that they automatically go into that mode, and they are warm, hospitable, and you know when people have nothing, then they often give the most. You know we 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 were starving. There was there was no food. We were pretty sure we were all going to die, as it. Turns out Marie did die. You know, Marie was killed. Um, but they gave us everything. They helped you get out, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, they, they, they were. Marie was Marie was killed, and they, and then I was really quite badly injured. When he says badly injured, he means like there was a massive hole, holes more than one, through his body. Paul, tell the story of how you found your artery. So even that's quite funny. So they it was it was kind of six AM in the morning and we'd been waiting. Maria had done this interview on CNN and mm-hmm. the BBC and Channel Four from Homs saying that they were killing civilians. And we'd gone to bed. We, they put us in a little back room in this this building that was the at like a makeshift media center. And actually, more humour. We went to bed, me and Marie, and we just I covered them in these blankets and rugs on the floor. And then I got under. And then Marie's laying there. She's Marie is blind in one eye. She lost her eye a long time ago in a rocket attack in Sri Lanka. So she wears an eye patch. And so we're laying there about two o'clock in the morning. This is after she's done the interviews. And she goes, Hey Paul, I think I'm going deaf. And I was like, what? I said, you're already blind in one eye. You, you can't be deaf as well. And she goes, no, I am. I think it's the shelling. We've been under shelling for weeks, just every day, bam, bam, bam. Mm. So so I got my phone out and I, uh, I start looking in her ear that she's going deaf in. And I saw something in there and it was like, hang on a second. And so I got like a matchstick out and started rooting about in her ear. And she's laying there going, what, what, what is it? And I'm going, stay still, stay still. And I picked this thing out of her ear and showed it. And she goes, what's that? And I said, remember when I lent you my little headphones to do the interview on CNN? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> She'd left the rubber bud in her ear and thought she was going deaf. And it was so funny because we were both wetting ourselves and, um, Every time one of us nearly went to sleep, the other one would just wet themselves laughing. And we were like two kids at a sleepover. You know, Aww. it was like that. We were just la- It was so funny. She thinks she's going deaf. And I'd said when I lent her the earphones, don't lose the rubber buds. And got Wednesday in here. <laughs> so the next morning we woke up and then Assad, Assad's forces had located us. They fired about 
well, and for sure, I counted four rockets hit the building. Deliberately to hit, oh, to yeah, hit you yeah, guys. We, it wasn't we, random. No, not at all. And we, we no. you know, we've won a court case since proving that. But they yeah. tracked us. They didn't like people broadcasting, showing the world what they like to do in the dark. Yeah. And then they, they attacked, you know, and it took about five minutes for, for, for the place, the building we were in, to be turned into, into hell. And the last... The last rocket that hit that did the damage, I mean, I stayed upright, but it was just an unimaginable, huge, ex- just explosion. And as the kind of smoke cleared, I was, everyone was a bit deaf, and I, I kind of thought something had hit my leg. And I thought, oh, I better check that nothing's, I haven't broken it, you know, just check myself over. And I put my hand on my leg, and my hand kind of, slipped inside my leg and out outside the other side of it. my hand went right through my leg and at that point the weirdest thing was i just went oh no hospital food and i had this i did and i had this hospital image food. i had this image of you know what when they do like that pork in gravy and it all congeals and leathery roast potatoes and oh, that dang. And I was going, oh, no, oh, no. And then I remembered. And then the next thing was, hang on. Remember when Jamie Oliver tried to feed kids salads and healthy food and the parents were bringing hamburgers up and shoving them through the gates of the school? (laughs) I was thinking of that. And I thought, well, hang on. If I'm in hospital, people can bring me food in. And and once I'd resolved that issue about getting fed in hospital... I had to. I, I think knew your that, request was whiskey, though, over over <laughs> anything else. <laughs> Just don't bring me a salad. <laughs> but then I had to. Find, I had to sort my leg out because I was losing a lot, a lot of blood at the time. So I kind of, I did have to rummage about inside my leg, and um, and I found the artery and I squoze it and checked it and checked it for leaks, and then I put a, put a tourniquet on. And it was about 15 minutes. They carried on attacking. So I was I was laying in the rubble and they were still attacking and the the, the pool of blood was getting bigger. And I, that's, I spotted an Ethernet cable, grabbed the Ethernet cable, tied it around my leg and tightened up the tourniquet until they stopped shelling. And when they did, a couple of the Syrian lads, the, the guys who'd been looking after us, came and dragged me back inside. And I'd, I'd found Marie and Marie, Marie was dead and Remy, my mate Remy, mm-hmm. was dead as well. Um, and then, then they got us to the field, but they, they threw us in the back of these trucks and screamed us around to the field hospital. And who were those it was, people? Did you know they, them? These were, these were the activists who we who'd been reporting from Homs. They were all young lads with with camera phones who'd spent months in the rubble, going out and taking them. You know, all of the world's information was coming from these from these young lads and and you know they they were the the voice of homs you know we got a little bit out and we spent a little bit of time there compared to what yeah. they did so what happened with marie and and remy what happened they were lovely they they washed them and they 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 treated oh. them with scent and that and they kept them in a cheese factory which was cold right for a couple of days but then they had to bury them in the end they buried oh, they had them. To bury them there yeah yeah they were buried but they kept a GPS fix of where they were buried, and when the time came, they 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 unburied them and and took them back. But we we were we were stuck for about five six days. Then I remember they dragged us into the field hospital, and Doctor Mohammed was there. He was so funny, 
And as he carried me and dragged me in, he went, hello, Paul. And it was like, hello, Dr. Mohammed. And he goes, what seems to be the problem? And it was like, I've got a hole in my leg. And he prodded it and he went, oh, so you have. Oh, a massive hole. I'm surprised you kept your leg. Well, he, I think there was talk of chopping it off, but it was like, I, I thought, I said, what's my chances? And they said 50-50, about Oof. whether you live or that. And I said, well, look, leave it, you know, and if, if I do, then I'll have something there. And if I don't, it doesn't really matter, does it, you know? But they, they, they got a toothbrush out and a bottle of iodine, filled it up oh, with man. iodine and scrubbed oh. it with a toothbrush. And then oh. Doc, Dr. Mahama goes, Paul, we've run out of stitches and I said, what are you going to use? And he pulled out this big staple gun, oh. an office staple gun. <laughs> and, oh, and he, no. he put like 40 staples, because it, it, it was a big in wound and a big out wound. So they had to staple yeah. up both sides of the uh Does he have any morphine? No. Anything? Didn't even, nothing? We, we had, they had some paracetamol, but which I oh, declined nothing. on the basis of like my body is my temple. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's but, horrible and then you had a, you had three what five days in a room waiting for help yeah well then they found out we were alive then and then they, the dr muhammad right. put us in this little room away from the med center the field hospital and you knew you could trust Dr. Mohammed. And yeah, the lads yeah. That he, he, they've been, we, these, these have been our, our, our protectors and saviors, these lads. So we had total yeah. faith in them. But it was like the whole city was surrounded and they were, you could hear the tanks at night getting closer and closer. And um, they, they kind of knew what building we were in. So they were just destroying all the buildings around us to try and get to us to, to finish the job. Oh my God. But again, this is so quite a dire situation. But the guys looking after us were so funny that they would come in, right? Check this out. So we're trekked in this rubble. And then one day they all come in and they hadn't been shelling for a few hours. And I said, what's happening? And he said, oh, it's the election. And I was like, oh. what? And he said, yeah, they're having a vote on the constitution. And I was yeah. like, you're kidding. And th and th that's why the, sh the shelling had stopped, because the soldiers had all gone off to vote. Oh. And this in the middle of a full-on siege. And so all of the lads around us in Homs, within an hour, they come back going, hey, Paul, we've made a video. They got all of these guys, dressed them up with bandages on the legs and on the heads and on crutches, and they'd all made a big queue. And they all had bombs and mortars and missiles that, and they had a, they'd made a ballot box and all of these guys were coming up and dropping bombs in the ballot box <laughs> and just made a spoof video in the middle of a siege. That's the kind of yeah, of yeah. spirit that keeps them going. Even I was like, you guys are lunatics. And then someone explained <laughs> to me that Homs is kind of considered the Liverpool of Syria, which made perfect sense to me. It was like, ah, oh, okay, you're all crackers as well. But they were just <laughs> wonderful. And, you know, it, they would sit and, you know, at night when it was pretty bleak, you know, because you had time to think and the shallow went a little bit quieter. At Abu Layla, one of the guys would come up and try and teach me classical Arabic poetry, which involved me laying there, kind of going, <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and, and it was like noises that I didn't know existed, but you know, they had to be just right for the poetry. So I'm going, of course, because <laughs> it's so beautiful when done properly. I'm sure you did a great job. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I remember like to see a recording of that. Edith sitting there going, I'm sure this will come in really handy one day, Paul. <laughs> When you're serenading somebody. In my classical Arabic. But they, no, they, you know, and and that's something that I don't think you can, I don't think you can shell humour and and joy out of it. Of course, I'm not saying for a moment that it wasn't terrible and awful and hellish, but it's the little bits that get you through day by day. You know, without them little interludes, you know, I think that people can only cope with so much downright, you know, hellish misery. But, you know, the human spirit, and, and I've never seen it fail. I've been in siege situations. I've been in in dire situations. And I'm always amazed at, at people's ability to find that chink in the misery and, and to stand up, dust themselves down and, yeah. and carry on. You know, that's, it, it is amazing. It's amazing. You know, I was talking to grandma the other day about what it was like in the war times when they had rations and stuff. And she goes, she's so sweet. She goes, oh, it's much easier back then. I was like, what are you talking about? How is it much easier? You're getting bombed. She's like, oh, we didn't have to, you know, worry about always saying the right thing and doing the right thing. We were in one spirit with each other. Yeah, yeah. And we weren't against each other. And that helps. Absolutely. I tell you, you saw a glimpse of that over here when the first lockdown came. It's gone now. Yes, it's gone, isn't it? I, at the beginning, it was but totally At the there. beginning, until it kind of crumbled, until, you know, the, the, the higher echelons decided they can break it and we, we can't. But the, right. I, I remember sitting here. People were calling me up and I was doing a few calls about what it's like to, yeah. to be on the front line in your own country. And we did see a bit of that. We did see, you know, what people talk about as the spirit of the Blitz. You know, there was a a sweet spot where there was a sense of community and people would do anything for each other. And, you know, that sadly has dissipated now. But there was was definitely a sense of that. I'm not saying it was all sweetness and light, but... Why do you think it dissipated so quickly? I think think you get one chance in it, you get one shot of it, and I think people lost faith in in the political leadership of it. You know, you have a lockdown, you tell people it's for their own good. People yep. do it once, but then when you lift it and then you try to reimpose it, you've lost. And you confuse it as well. Yeah, the the messaging was was completely up. Everything went to cock, but there was. I did definitely see it for the first, for that first yeah. lockdown. When it, when it really counted, I saw what I see in other countries. After, after Kosovo and Serbia in... 1999 i went out there i smuggled myself in and we we were still bombing serbia at that point and i i I remember getting there thinking right this is going to be you know this is going to be misery and woe and and i got there and they were like they'd moved because the bombing in belgrade they'd moved all their partying to the afternoons so on the second second, yeah the second night they, they they just said it's fantastic every night we go on the roofs we have a big spliff and we watch the NATO show, i.e. the bombing. And they watched that, but people were cooking for the old people and taking them food round. And again, you see that little, you know, they were, 
the country was in a weird way united again because they had a common ally nato was bombing them right so they all banded together and i went back about a year later to see how things were getting on and do another story out there and and he said "Ah, it's all gone back to normal you know no one speaks to old people anymore the parties are over you know and it it was very much they were all kind of sitting there all kind of dewy-eyed about how they missed the the bombing <laughs> not the bombing <laughs> but the spirit that people people mustered up and you know time and time again i see it you know that yeah all the the bits of life that we think are so important when they're all stripped away and all people have is each other relationships it's, yeah it's the it's people people will get through um i remember you told me a story once about a little boat and um you got i think you got captured was it in iraq or syria did you make the boat yeah is this yeah, one that, that you made my own yeah. design right yeah yeah <laughs> we were we were this is actually when when i very very first met marie it was in i think it was 2003 and all of the world's press were trying to get into iraq before march when we knew that we were going to invade iraq again it was obvious so I'd gone to Syria to try and get in because that Syria has it at the north. I knew some Kurds who said they could get me across the border. Yeah. So I was in this town called Kamishli in northeastern Syria. Is this the same border that we went through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's where we came through from Iraq into Syria. <laughs> and there was about 30 of us. And the process was the Syrian secret police ran this little boat across the border. They crossed the Tigris River into Iraq. To get on that boat, you needed a bit of paper with the stamp on it. Uh-huh. So every day, about 30 of us who'd all met up would walk down the road to this office and we'd say, can we have a piece of paper saying we can go into Syria? And they'd say, no, give us a cup of tea. And we'd all just sit there kind of like, and wait for the next day. It was mind-numbing. Eventually, I, I was going mad, so I thought, right, I'm building a boat. I'm going to sail across. So I got me me driver to go and buy me four massive lorry inner tubes and get some wood and some rope. And in my mm-hmm. hotel room in the desert in Syria, I built this big raft out of lorry inner tubes and put wood on it and little handles. And, and then I deflated it, rolled it up, tied ropes around it so it was portable. Mm-hmm. Then I talked a couple of mates into doing the trip with me, Paul and Liz. And uh, so at midnight, we we lowered the rope, the boat out of the window into our cab. And uh, Mohammed, who had this bright orange tracksuit on, we're, we're doing this clandestine river crossing, and he's dressed in a tracksuit. The only man-made fibers visible from the moon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Like, nice run. So no, we, we 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 bat we bribed the guards on on the road already. Give them some money and we bribed them to let us through. And uh, we got the boat down to the river and ju- we're blowing it up. We're more or less in the water, blowing it up. And the next minute, like there's gunshots and this Syrian army patrol come out of nowhere and start chasing us. And we're kind of legging it down the river trying to escape. <laughs> I don't know where we were going to go and nick another boat somewhere. So eventually they caught us and they, they they put bags on our heads and took us to this little room oh where, God, that where we're scary. all tied up to chairs and they got bags on our heads and no one speaks English and they keep coming in and 
shouting at us and leaving. And it was a bit like, ooh, it's not definitely not the best situation. But eventually, no. after a couple of hours, this guy walks in and he goes, hello, do you speak English? And I was like, yeah. And he takes the bag off me head. And he said, um, where are you from? And I went, oh, Liverpool, thinking the Beatles, Liverpool. Yeah, but yeah. he went, Liverpool, he went, Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Result. ACAST recommends LGBTQ plus creators who are making an impact this month and beyond. Tune in for your new favorite show. Hello, I'm Danny Pellegrino, and I host the Everything Iconic podcast. If you're into reality TV and pop culture, subscribe to Everything Iconic, where I break down all of your favorite Bravo shows like The Real Housewives and Vanderpump Rules. I interview celebrity guests and take a bunch of detours along the way. Everyone from Cameron Diaz, Rosie O'Donnell, Daniel Levy, Andy Cohen, Katie Couric, and even Queen icon legend Miss Piggy have stopped by, so you'll never want to miss an episode. You could find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino and subscribe to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, the show with over 23 million downloads on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. And I'm yes. going, fantastic, Stevie Jenner. <laughs> <laughs> and he, t- he goes, do you want a cigarette? And I was like, yes, please. Absolutely. Take, takes the bag off me head, um, unties me, gives me a coffee and a fag. And we're going, he's going, Manchester United. And I'm going, rubbish, fucking rubbish. And then <laughs> and then we're chatting away about football for about 10 minutes. And you just hear this voice in the corner go, do you think you could get him to take the bags off our heads too? <laughs> <laughs> it was me, mate. <laughs> like, yeah. Them. Can you let them go as well? So, yeah, so Stevie Jenner. Well, because of football, you know, another wonderful thing that brings people together and helps them feel like they're part of something. Yeah, who'd, who'd have thought brilliant. that that would have been the, uh, the icebreaker? And and then, yeah, we just, we bonded Lovely. with these guards, you know what I mean? And it just, from out that of the... two minutes before could yeah, have... Yeah, it was looking shaky. pretty shaky at one point. Imagine if we banned a Man United supporter. I'd gone, Liverpool! And he'd gone... David Beckham, that had to be him. Oh, no. I'd have had to have developed a mank accent really quick and gone, Liverpool are bastards. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I just got it wrong. Did I say I Liverpool? I was guessing. <laughs> God. Um, there was this chap in Venezuela that put together, long story short, a rugby match between two gangs to help them to not kill each other. It worked. And now he goes into prisons and has people play rugby with each other to like rehabilitate them. Wow, know? in Venezuela um, as well. That's yeah, that's some going. This guy was held up at gunpoint at his at his place of work, so he called the police in Venezuela, and they're yeah. not like our police. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck. And um, the police ended up well putting the boy on his knees and saying, "Oh, I'll, we can shoot him for you if you like." And the guy wow. was like, "No, no, 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 no." I don't want you to do that. Just take him to jail or whatever you do. <laughs> no, no, no. So he had to pay the police to not shoot the guy that almost shot him. It was a very strange thing. But anyway, so the reaction from the guy that owned the company that he was trying to rob, he thought, okay, well, I know what I can do. Let's look at why he is holding up my security guard at gunpoint. 
And it was obviously because he was, you know, part of a gang and broke and didn't know how to live his life and thought that's a quick way to get money. And he looked into it and ended up making this rugby thing happen between two very dangerous gangs. It's just crazy, isn't it, how sport and... I don't know, that kind of, the rules, the discipline, the kind of, I don't know. It's amazingly unifying, isn't it? You, you kind of yeah. always say it as almost. It's like a church almost. Yeah, it's tribal. Yeah. But, you know, the moment I said Liverpool, his eyes lit up. Yeah, because he knew you were part of his tribe. Yeah, my eyes lit up as well because it was like, you know, it's very hard to shoot someone once you've had a big smile and oh, a, an God. interaction, you know what I mean? It yeah, went yeah. from like, ooh, to like, okay. This is manageable, you know what I mean. That, that and that and that was only that was the mention of someone's name, you know, a name of a city that happens to have a, the best football yeah. team in the world. Yeah, there's no doubting that. <laughs> Don't write in and complain. You, they won't be read. <laughs> <laughs> Don't waste your breath. <laughs> Straight in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when that's you uh, walk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> The, the, there's a funny follow-on from that story. After they let us go, I went yeah. back to this hotel where all the press were and no one would talk to me because they were all like, you've spoiled our war. We're never going to get into Iraq now. So I was sitting like oh. Billy No Mates in the bar on oh, my own. Poor, poor. <laughs> <laughs> and then the door opens and it's Marie, Marie Colvin, who's, who's a legend in the journalist world. And I'm just sat there, and she goes, who and where is the boatman? And I was like, oh, God. And so I put oh, my hand up. That's how she knew you. Yeah, that's and how she, she met that's you. That's how she met me. And she walked across, and she went, boatman, Marie Colvin, I like your style. Can I buy you a whiskey? And I was like, yeah. And that, that's how I met. That's how, that's how our relationship started. See, that should have been the beginning of the movie. Yeah, in, exactly. It's the beginning of the book, but not the movie. But not the movie. Okay, so the movie, if anybody wants to watch it, so we've got, the there's the Hollywood movie about Marie. What did they call that? A Private War. Private War. I think it was brilliant, and I think people should watch it, but I do think it misses out most of the fun stories that actually are true and real. Um, and the movie that you really, really want to watch is Under the Wire which is the same um, title as as the book that Paul wrote. But that movie is real because it's your real footage from the stories yeah, that you've told yeah. us today on the podcast. Under the Wire, that's like, I mean, it's a documentary. Yeah, it's still out there now. It's it's online in places. So. It's absolutely like you're, you'll be on the edge of your seat. But I do think in that Hollywood one, the, the private war, they should have started with that. I don't know, when you know something, you've read the book and you've, you're like, oh, you miss out so much. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, but that explains so much about, you know, how, because Marie just saw that we, it was, we were kindred spirits, you know, she was yeah. like, that's exactly what I would have done. She, she, you'd never have found Marie sitting around in a big press pack, you know, she would have, she was a rule breaker. Another, another way in somehow. She was telling me that she was going to nick a boat in Israel to sail into, into Gaza when, when that was locked down. And, right. you know, we always had plans about sailing in. We went to the editors of the paper one day and said, we'd just come out of Libya for a little break. And, we, and Marie was like, you still got your boat? And I was like, yeah. And she went, we can sail in. So we went and said to the editors, we want to sail into Libya. And they were like, okay. You can then, just sail into Libya. No, the land routes were closed and we wanted to carry on with the story. We were we were we were dreading getting out of Libya and not being able to get back in. 
So that's wow. why we sail the boat to Malta on standby. Oh, that's why the boat was there. We were always trying to find a way of tying up war and sailing. <laughs> <laughs> the story must be told at the end of the day, because if it's not told, then... Well, and, they, and these people like to work in the darkness. You know, the, these dictators, they love nothing better than not having the press or journalists or people shining of lights course. in their little dark places. It must be hard to stay opinionless in that scenario. I know, like, a journalist shouldn't have an opinion, but how can you do that when you're surrounded by all of your friends? Just yeah, well, that, that makes it in, that's a really good point. And the, the thing about that is it makes it a lot harder and a lot more dangerous because when you're kind of with people who you're relying on for protection and for food and for shelter and just generally in them situation, just staying alive is a battle. So they, they then turn around to you and go, oh, there was a massacre here. You can't just write that down and, and print it. You know, you then have to say to people you know and trust, yeah. take me there. From there, you have to say, well, no, take me to the exact people because oh. you're open to, to allegations of, of propaganda. If you just write something that you've been told, then yeah. you're almost could be used as a mouthpiece. It's just and, hearsay, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and you, so you have to investigate. You have to, and you know, the closeness we got meant that we had to go further and further. And I always say with working in them places with Marie, it was like peeling an onion. There was always another layer that you had yeah. to get through and go deeper and deeper. And that's, you know, why we ended up in Homs in the middle of, of a, a deadly siege was because we couldn't just take people's word. You know, we had to prove it. And, you know, that's what journalists, that's what real thorough journalism is that's the difference between that and a youtube clip you know yep. we we have to go and verify and always keep showing one more layer peeling back another layer of the onion and you know it, it cost me real life and it cost me a, a few pounds of flesh here and there there's also the the ptsd side of things the mental bits that stay with you i think anybody that is in a war zone in any capacity whether it's journalism or as a soldier They've yeah. got to have some sort of issue. I think journalists get it easier because we. I came back and everyone wanted to hear the story. You know what I mean? Yeah. All oh, the news right. and writing the books and doing the films is a way of getting it out it's your system. It's kind of therapy a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah, whereas soldiers come back and people go, oh, I don't know about that, don't know about that. Don't talk about the war. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, you often hear that, like my granddad fought in the World War II, never spoke about it. You know, and, and yeah. soldiers come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and don't get the opportunity, really, unless it's amongst themselves. And what was I saying earlier about they don't do it amongst themselves because they've all gone through it. That just ends oh, up getting yeah. bottled up inside of them and, and manifests later in all sorts of, you know, PTSD is something you cannot, I, you know, I would swear blind I never had it. But I'm probably <laughs> sure that hmm. I, I did. You know what I mean? But it's not something like yeah. you can check off a list and go, yeah, you've got it or you haven't, whatever. It's yeah. just them. Um, but these poor soldiers, they're the ones, you know, because nobody wants to hear what happened to them. What do you reckon on the therapist that um, that you, sp I know you've spoken to a bunch of therapists. I mean, you have to, <laughs> you know, it's like part, part of the rule when you come home. What do you think about them? Because sometimes they've been to war and sometimes they haven't. Yeah, I, I found the best ones were the ones who were ex-military because they... Yeah. I, I, I kind of remember being with one therapist and every week I'd go, and, you know, because it was a long story. 
I could only tell it in sections. So I think I was right. up to the up to the part where I was in the tunnel trying to escape. And you're just entertaining them at that point. And, and it was honestly glad that it was like I was like, so last week we were in the tunnel. What happened? And it was like, hang on. This is like your audio book. You know, I'm just telling you a really exciting <laughs> yeah. story. And it's I'm not true. getting much back on this. And then what happened? Yeah. So what happened How did then? you get out? Yeah. <laughs> and it was like I'd leave them with a cliffhanger every week, you know, and come back. And so I didn't really find that very helpful. But no. I did eventually get some um some some people who were veterans who were just told to and they weren't they weren't wowed by all of the bangs and you know and that was what I needed. I didn't need somebody to listen to to a war story. I just needed someone to go, I kinda get why you find that yeah. hard or why you know, you you didn't need people hanging on your every word. You wanted people to try and think behind what you were saying. They were great. And you know, for the first time speaking to them, I felt like it was actually doing some good and not just not just telling stories. I know, this is it, isn't it? You've got to find find the right person to talk to. You can't just talk to anyone. Yeah. When you get the right one, it's it's absolutely it's fine. You know, you feel comfortable talking to them. Yeah. But it was a bit of a realisation that What would the advice be to people that are dealing with that? Is there more than one kind of option what if people don't want to go to therapy i know a lot of people are, are against it and like don't want to talk about it with somebody that they don't know or you know is there is there more than one option whatever the situation and you know i can i can only speak from my own but you know i think my my actual main way i think i came off relatively unscathed was when i woke up on that first day in hospital in england when i had this massive operation it was like no journalist likes to become the story. That's the, the worst thing in the world is you become the story. But to me, it was like, well, hang on, I have to, I have to make something. You know, I've made a promise to tell the story, so I have to turn the, the shit. I have to get yep. something positive out of it. And you know, the the positive thing I could do was to get out there and just tell the story as it happened on behalf of the people who saved my life, which were the people in Homs, the people who patched me up, the people who helped me escape, the people who died helped me to escape. You know, there was yeah. a lot of death and misery on the way. And, you know, I just, if you can find some way to turn the bad around on itself. To make and, it purposeful. Yeah, to make it, to make another purpose for Maria's sake, yeah. for Remy's yeah. sake, for the people in Homs' sake. It was tell the story and and inform the world and you know do your best give it. I've given it everything I have to try and tell that story in the hope that something good comes out of it. And I think for for any situation, you know, look for the good side. Try, try and find the good side and try and turn it around because it's quite easy, I believe, to let the dark side consume you and and go under with it. And you know, you yeah. owe it to yourself and to everybody you know, not to let the dark side consume you. And that's not easy. And I'm not saying everyone can do it, but, you know, there's generally a bright, there's, there's generally a positive side to every big negative. And if you just hunt for that and just throw yourself at it, you know, you'll hit walls at times. But if you throw everything at it, you can generally get some good out of even the worst situations. You know, there's always a good side that that can be found. The silver lining. Yeah. If we can't find one, we make one. 
get your paint out and make it spray get it up get that paintbrush out yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh lovely thanks Paul thanks for chatting with me my pleasure thank you darling take care